Hi, welcome to Infinite Leaders Live, the podcast that shares real-life lessons from real-life people. We're incredibly fortunate to speak to loads of inspirational people from around the world, and we're delighted that you've joined us today to listen, to learn, and share. I'm joined, as usual, by my pal, Alan. How are you, Alan? Yeah, good, thanks, Lewis. And we're proud again to wear our Tsunami products. Tsunami is the number one choice for eco-sportswear. And I'm really excited by today's guests, and that's a little bit of a loose one there, guests, not guests, and they will certainly talk about the things you don't get taught at university or on any courses. And before we dive in, as ever, we really appreciate your feedback. Press subscribe. Please leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing and get in touch where you can to join the conversation. You can find us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and also at theinfinitelearners.com. Be better educators, be better humans is what we're all about. And let's uh, see if we can add to that through today's guest, Alan. Do you want to introduce them and crack on? Yeah, get your pens and papers ready, guys. There's going to be some absolute gems of wisdom coming out of the show today. We have a first for the podcast, two guests at the same time. Lorcan O'Brien is the Director of Sport at Dulwich Prep London. He's currently studying for an MPQ in Senior Leadership. And Lorcan actually recommended his partner guest, Aaron Walsh, to us for this podcast. So we thought we'd get them both on and talk about the mental skills project that they've been working on with schools in the UK. Now, Aaron Walsh is an experienced performance coach with a demonstrated history of working in the sports industry. He's the mental skills coach for the Chiefs Rugby in New Zealand. He's worked with the Warriors NRL Club. He's now at a wide-ranging sports portfolio, having previously worked with Hockey New Zealand and New Zealand Football, New Zealand National Women's Olympics and Auckland Aces cricket side. Aaron also works with four Major League Baseball players as clients, as well as multiple corporate leadership teams, creating and maintaining a high-performance working environment. So guys, we're really excited to talk to you. And as we said, we've never done a double guest podcast before. So let's see if it actually works. So Aaron, let's start with you and welcome to the show. And tell us a bit about what you do and how you got involved in the mental skills project in schools. Yeah, um, probably, you know, I've sort of have an unconventional journey into what I've done is um, I didn't go down the traditional path, go to university. I sort of found myself as a retired rugby player who... I don't know, I really didn't probably deliver on my potential and always had this fascination around the mental side. And uh, back when I was playing, I'm a little bit older now, there wasn't really much uh, emphasis on it. And so I've just spent the last 15 years mainly working in the professional sports environment around mental skills. And I suppose around the skills project, that it's pretty simple, really. Um, you know, as have I sort of work with these guys that are, you know, probably most of my world-class performers, I always ask them about mental skills and they sort of come back with two major themes. And it was, the first thing was, I wish I'd started it earlier. And the second theme is it makes a hell of a difference. And so it's sort of, I've got two teenagers myself um, and it sort of got me on this sort of bit of a journey, like going, well, why should we reserve this real critical stuff that helps people operate under tremendous pressure and still deliver what they're capable of. Why should we reserve that for high performance environments? And let's take it another layer, you know, another level deeper. Why shouldn't we be exposing our kids to this? And I suppose a lot of my motivation has been being a parent and then also observing kids coming out of high schools into our professional environments and watching so many of them have been almost insulated from pressure or um, you know, had this whole mindset around, well, we just can't keep putting pressure on them. Let's keep little Johnny safe. And 
I don't think that's the real world. I think pressure's here. I think all of our kids experience it. I don't think it's going away. And I don't think our role as leaders and parents and teachers is to try and protect them from it. I think it's to give them tools to navigate through it and learn how to function within pressure. Um, and I think it's probably quite a difficult message at times for people to comprehend, but I don't know about you guys, but I don't see pressure going anywhere. I think it's here to stay. And I think we need to help our kids navigate through it rather than try and give them ways to avoid it. So that's probably the motivation. Thank you, Aaron, for that. And then, Lorcan, can you tell us about your why then for getting involved in the Mental Skills Project? Yeah, thanks, Al. I mean, there was probably two aspects to that, really. I think one was driven by uh, necessity and the other driven by a bit of desire and probably probably a 50-50. I think back in the first lockdown when it started in the UK, um, we were keen just to develop a strong program. And of course, you're putting your head together with your department. You're speaking to great people. You're trying to share ideas. Um, you're trying to ring around your friends and colleagues and say, look, what can we deliver? We've, we've never been here before. What can we do? Um, you know, how do we deliver football remotely? How do we do games? How are we going to th make PE thrive? And I think one of the things which came out was maybe we need to look at our, our well-being provision. And I probably had a little bone of contention with well-being in general in schools. Um, and we're lucky at DPL. We've got a brilliant girl who runs uh, our well-being provision. Uh, Sarah Brownson's our deputy head. And we're lucky it's done quite well. Um, so I was keen to expand upon that and kind of use well-being as a foundation and maybe build upon it. So one was kind of, yeah, a desire to just expand our program. And I think, too, was I just felt there was a need for our kids to understand basic stuff like pressure and fear and risk and reward and, you know, being authentic because we're doing, you know, I think I'm pretty proud of our games program and our P provision at DPL. And that's down to we've got some really good staff. We've got a strong department of good people and that, you know, that kind of good nature of them, they're, they're high values. Uh, they lead by example. And on a, on a football field, on a rugby field, you know, they'll, they'll tell the boys, look, bring values to life. Bring our school values to life. We'll, we'll, we'll do our job. We'll, we'll do our scheme of work. We'll look at the tactical side, look at the physical, you know, bring school values to life. So a lot of the boys are, are doing a really good job in that. But at the same time, they're like, sir, I'm, you know, I'm worried or I'm a bit anxious. Or what if I make a mistake? Or what if I get this wrong? Or you know, so I've got exams in two weeks. Can I miss games today? Can I go to the library and study? I feel under pressure. And I just felt there was a need to do something. Um, and for what it's worth, Al, I knew nothing about mental skills before I hooked up with that with um, with the big man, the great man. And I, I read an article he wrote on LinkedIn, which was, I think, well, she was probably normalizing mental skills. Uh, and there was also something on adversity and resilience. And I thought, right, there's an opportunity here. So reached out to Aaron. We touched base. We, we actually did a lesson, a joint lesson on pressure as a generic topic for the kids, um, which was brilliant. And we kept in touch. And then we just decided, look, why don't we do something for schools? Why don't we, could, could we deliver a lesson on fear versus freedom? Could we, could we teach a bit about authenticity? Could we... Could we, you know, could we almost tell the boys and girls at the school, pressure's okay, um, walk towards it, it, you know, don't get rid of it. Are we, is it, is it viable, basically? Um, so we reached out to some friends and colleagues, got in touch with, with Aaron, and we, that's where it started. 
But the why was really about two things. It was a desire to do something good, which I felt was needed. And then there was necessity in, I guess, lockdown just to expand our program um, and see when we go back to normal, whatever that normal is going to be, if it'll take legs. Um, and fingers crossed it does. So that was a starting point. So I was um, recently writing with a, a colleague of mine a piece to share with parents around um, what PE is and trying to change that sort of traditional viewpoint and perception that parents have of PE being very traditionally sports-based. And it took me back to the national curriculum in 1992. There was an aim in there around building physical competence and confidence. And obviously, at the moment, what we're hearing from you and Aaron is a real step and a real move away from that and actually prioritising the other things and not physical competence and confidence. Why, Aaron, touching on what you said earlier um, about the reasons to maybe bring this into schools and not just high-performance cultures and, and elite setups, why is that important that children learn more than just the physical competence and confidence? Why are these mental skills so crucial? You know, the sort of the way that I've looked at it is that sort of talk about this concept that is called bridging the gap, right? So you have someone that's really physically really good, right? They might have high physical capability and we could call that potential, right? But then often what they deliver under pressure when something's required of is actually something quite different. And so there's normally always a gap between capability and delivery. And what sits in that gap is pressure normally, or it's outcome, or it's um, consequences, or it's expectation. And so we can prepare, and this is probably what I've seen in the professional environment, lots is we can prepare these unbelievable athletes. I mean, they are just physically, you know, you're in awe of them. And yet week after week, they don't turn up when it matters. Now, we know that's not a physical issue anymore. We know it's not a technical issue anymore. And so... You know, part of my motivation was, you know, looking at my own kids and look at the kids in the schools. I think there's a lot of kids that have high level of capability, but they really struggle to deliver on it. And it's not because for physical reasons, it's because there is, you know, put it this way, we have a look at a, an equation, high performance, right, is capability minus interference. That's my definition of high performance. And so if we've got in this gap large interfering factors that exist mainly in their mindset or what they're thinking about, what they're focusing about, their, their natural instinct to get rid of pressure, their natural instinct to remain comfortable, their natural instinct to not want to walk towards adversity, then all of a sudden we know high performance or reaching one's potential requires those things, right? It requires operating in pressure. It requires walking through and enduring adversity. And it requires learning how to fail and failure being normalized as part of growth. And so if we're not giving our kids tools to navigate through those critical areas that we know are essential for people to perform, then all we're leaving them with a capability that's unable to be delivered upon. So tell me, Aaron, how much of that capability, you used that phrase there, natural instinct, how much of this yeah. is innate and how much of it is learned behaviour that, that Lorcan and, and his pilot study and what you're doing in the UK can really start to adjust and make a difference in? Yeah, I think, I think the way, another way of looking at it too is that mental skills traditionally has been what approached by what I would call a deficit model. So a deficit model is we work on stuff when things go wrong, right? And what I've really worked hard 
in the professional world in particular of sports is really to change it to a skill model. So to normalize mental skills, so meaning it's normal for everybody to have this relationship with pressure that is challenging, okay? So that's normal, that's not a personality trait, it's something that as a species we instinctively do. Can we develop a set of skills to be able to overcome our natural tendencies to walk away from pressure to remain comfortable and to avoid failure? Can we arrange or can we expose and can we train and can we develop a set of skills which enable us to go beyond that and then operate in ways that we normally wouldn't? And I would say the answer is unequivocally yes, absolutely we can. So I would say thinking well is a skill and you've got to develop it and you've got to train it. Yes, there are natural um, circumstances that might be related to the way you're brought up, you know, all of those sort of things that go into that equation. But you do get to a point where you go, I am what I am today, right? And I want to grow in this area because I'm, I'm missing out on so much of what I want to do in my life because I'm held back by fear or, you know, the consequences or all of those things. So how do we give people skills to navigate through those things instead of just staying where they're at? Lorcan, bearing all that in mind, and some some brilliant little insights there from Aaron, how, how did you then go about digesting all that information, all that research, and then put it into a pilot project? Great question. I mean, partly inspired by both of yourselves and, and yourself and Lewis, I think there was a great need for collaboration and sharing in lockdown. And I think when I listened to yourself and... Um, and Lewis, and you know whether it's your podcasts or whether it's your 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 writings or your journals or whatever, there was just a need for people to share. And I think to that that collaboration has grown immensely in the last sort of twelve months, where schools kind of stopped competing, you know, because we weren't playing fixtures and we weren't worried about maybe you know the uh, the marketing, the websites, the Twitter. It was just a need to collaborate and share. And I think that there was a lot of good people out there who were very keen to do it. Um, so I, we were desperately keen to build mental skills into a school curriculum, but we've no idea how. And part of our journey today is still finding a best fit. Um, but there are certain things which are working really well, um, which we'll talk about a bit later. But I guess to answer your question, we reached out to like-minded people. Uh, so Chris Dossett is a very good friend. He's been a mentor to me. He's a great director of sport. He, uh, he gave me my first job <laughs> many years ago. Saved my life actually. When I was 23, I was uh, needed a career and a job, and uh, he said, "Listen, come and come and work at the school." He was director of sport. It was his first kind of director of sport job. Um, so I've been in touch, and I just said, "Look, got this idea, connected with this fantastic guy called Aaron Walsh. We've delivered a couple of lessons on on kind of mind gym or mental skills. Look, we have an idea. Could we deliver something to schools? Could we make it work?" Um, and then we said, right, okay. So myself and Chris got in touch with Aaron. We had, uh, God, we must have had three or four Zooms and meetings. Um, it was fairly deep, actually, because it was new. Um, and Master Walsh was very patient with us. <laughs> very patient. And it was good fun. And then we said, look, we're going to need help, basically. It's, it's actually, the trick really is to keep it simple. And I've learned, if there's something I've learned from Aaron, it's those three words. It's keeping it simple. Is it accessible to the pupils and can they apply it easily? So we were like, okay, well, we need some help. So we just contacted friends. I mean, it, it wasn't a sort of um, 
let's get great schools on board. It was just, let's get good people. So Chris reached out to two people, um, uh, Dave Burley at Winchester and Mark Nasey, who I've both got to know. There were new relations. Uh, it was brilliant. I reached out to Reby at Mulberry, who I've known for a long time, and a great lad called Russell at King's. So like-minded people, meeting new people, um, and just, yeah, put our heads together. So we picked a topic each. Uh, Aaron helped us. We each had a Zoom with him. We had some WhatsApp groups. We designed our lessons. We probably spent the summer, actually, the best part of four or five weeks, maybe doing little and often, probably spending, I don't know, maybe an hour a day, two hours a day, over the space of a month, just getting these lessons up to speed. Um, and Aaron was very, very good with his time. And he was incredibly patient because uh, he'll, he'll laugh at this, but actually if our starting goal and it may be his main point was look start by keeping it simple we didn't <laughs> we delved into the well very deep into the well um and it got complex quite quickly but actually it was lovely because we came together as a group we shared each other's lessons i delivered to chris chris delivered to someone else we tested the water to ourselves we made it simple um and it was lovely i have to say that that feeling of collaboration and sharing and no judgment. Uh, it was a, it was a good thing, um, and I think apart apart from all of that and the, the makeup and the fabric of how it got going, it was fun. Um, I've I've learned a lot personally. Like I've I've grown as a director of sports. I'm a better dad. Um, I you know I've, I've learned a lot from the other directors of sports in the group. There's a real culture of sharing good practice, and I think that was a real tangible outcome of the program. But Yes, six good people working together, putting their heads together, being brave, um, still out of our comfort zone. It's uncomfortable, um, but Aaron would always tell us you need to be comfortable feeling uncomfortable. So it's um, it's still a work in progress, but it's going really well. Lorcan, tell us what it looks like. What what will a, what does a lesson look like around one of your chosen mental skills subjects? Great question. So if I picked on my own topic, so each school picked a topic. So, for example, we had probably three of the big ones to start with. So Chris, uh, um, Chris Dossett developed identity. So he looked at um, identity versus insecurity. And uh, he looked, I looked at fear versus freedom. So we started off looking at identity um, and Chris uh, developed a lesson which was taught over probably two different lessons. Now, that could be two minute, two 30 minute periods or it could be two hour periods, whatever your normal lesson or period is per week. Um, we agreed to teach it over two weeks because we wanted time for delivery. We wanted it to be nice and slow and relaxed and we wanted time for reflection, you know, and a part of it as well is that there's discussion, there's vulnerability, there's sharing of stories. So we have a lesson, it's delivered over two weeks, um, in that lesson, there's a real mix, which we all agreed on. So there'll be a bit of content. So maybe there's a 15 minute, 20 minute presentation or PowerPoint. Um, there is a storytelling opportunity. There's maybe a small podcast to listen to or an interview. So, for example, um, to do Fear Versus Freedom, we got a couple of lovely people on board, a fantastic girl called Sarah Kelleher. She's a brilliant girl, former hockey player. Wonderful, wonderful. She's also Irish, which helps. Uh, and um, she delivered a little kind of glimpse into how she gets her, her pupils, who are hockey players. She's a kind of a, an under 18 GB coach on her 20s to, to just embrace fear on the, on the hockey field, you know, and how she creates these environments where, where, you know, you're not scared to make 
uh, a mistake. You, you're happy to take a risk. Um, Chris brought on Kat Bishop to do a little interview. So again, you've got a, a 15 minute interview with Kat Bishop uh, talking about the long win and, and identity. So in a lesson, there's a bit of presentation, there's a bit of storytelling, there's a bit of vulnerability, there's a little listening task and it finishes off with a plan. So the end, of, the end goal for me in my topic was a freedom plan. So the boys understand fear, they understand its sources, they figure out where it comes from, they read a little bit, they listen to something on the way home, on their bike, in the car, and then they've got to do a freedom plan. Um, and to be brave, I kind of put my own out there and said, look, you know, I can talk for Ireland on a good day, but actually speaking in assembly or speaking in public, speaking in front of parents is a fear. Still, still makes me anxious today. If I had to say you've got to speak in front of 100 new parents, I'd be nervous and anxious, probably fearful. Um, whether it's judgment or whether it's just innate nerves, I don't know. But so started with my own plan, give the kids an example and we just teach them to walk towards it. And it's really simple. It's applicable. Uh, it's fun and it's fairly engaging for the kids, which is good and has been fairly well received. I really like that thought, that phrase you use there of trying to walk towards it. And Aaron, I'm going to come to you next because I, I, I wanted you to try and um, just summarise the psychology that's going on here in young people and young adults that are having these kind of pressure feelings and these imposter syndromes and this sort of anxiety and nervousness and you're probably going to tell us a little bit about the limbic system and freeze, fight and flight and, and that kind of thing. Can you conceptualise this for us and, and wrap it up in a way that everyone could understand? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as a species, we've, we've, had, we've been designed to identify a threat, right? Because if we don't identify a threat, we don't survive. And throughout history, the strongest asset that we have as a species has been our tribe. So our ability to belong, our ability to be part of something, our ability to stay connected has been absolutely critical to our um, survival. And so now we live in a modern area, so we don't have the natural threats that our ancestors have, but we still have threats that exist. And so the natural instinct within each one of us is to eliminate a threat. So when we do feel pressure, our typical response is how do we get rid of it, right? And a lot of that response now isn't driven so much by, am I going to die? But it's driven by this other great need that we have, right? Which is to belong. So if we don't get things right, which is like Lorcas was talking about before, about if I don't speak well, there's a danger I will get rejected by my community, right? If I don't play well, there's a danger I'll get rejected by my coach or my team. If I don't do my exam well, there's a danger I get rejected. So that, can everyone, that danger is very powerful. I get rejected by my parents or that's a really powerful sense of fear that's evoked by the consequences of not performing when it matters. And the consequence of most people, which is the most powerful one is I get rejected. I no longer feel like I belong and belonging and being part of something is critical to my survival, right? So that would be sort of a layman's way of describing that. So in many respects there, what's happening is a child or, or, or a person in this pressurised situation doesn't want to face the pressurised situation and just wants to get out of there. They don't actually want to sit with that, work through and no, find a way around no, it. No, no. So, I mean, we're conditioned to eliminate pressure, not to sit within it, right? So that's our natural response. So the problem with that is, you know, high performance or reaching one's potential is 
it's implicit that we learn how to sit in pressure. Like it's just required. And so if we don't learn how to sit within pressure, we don't learn how to navigate through pressure. And I think some parents try to insulate their children from pressure. I mean, I go to my son's cricket game every week and I hear the parents very kindly saying, I oh, don't put any pressure on Johnny. We're in the back of my mind going, go on. Like Johnny needs to learn how to navigate. Now we don't want pressure to be overwhelming to cause damage, right? So we don't want to overexpose our children to pressure that they don't have the capability to deal with, but we do not want to keep insulating them from pressure and not give them the tools to work through it. Well, she, do you want to just touch on actually just something that Lewis mentioned there earlier? Maybe it's worth just touching on what we haven't done before is that, that foundation of well-being and where yeah. it sits, particularly within the school structure. And I'll tell you yeah, for yeah. why. But the well-being in schools is done and it's really, it's very good and it's, it's really important. And, you know, just as yeah. very selfishly in my own school, which I think Sarah does it really well. However, I would probably argue in general across many schools that, well-being is you know i wouldn't say they they not so much teach but i wouldn't say they encourage risk they don't they don't embrace pressure they don't celebrate that risk and pressure so maybe just explain where you think i mean i I mean i think well-being is the foundation of people performing really really well but it's not the totality and i think that's the danger when we see it the totality so my experience would be and i think you guys would know this well it's a different set of skills to organize your life in a way that's really lovely balanced that you come to work feeling really good about your work. That's one set of skills, but it's not the same set of skills then to sit in that work and be under tremendous pressure and know how to navigate through that. And so if we assume that under pressure, the answer is to go and look at a sunset or to go and, you know, do something self-love or self-care, which I'm not opposed to any of that. It's often not going to answer the problem that's laying in front of you in that moment. So I would say that, you know, well-being is critical. It's critical foundation, but it's not the totality. So in essence, what you're saying is, is well-being practices shouldn't be used as an escape from trying to get away from this feeling, but actually to enhance the feeling of sitting with it. Yeah, nail it. Absolutely nail it. Like, like I'm not making a probably an unfair generalization here, but the, the well-being, a lot of the well-being work's goal is to reduce stress and pressure, Right which I don't think is a bad thing in itself because so much stress and pressure is unneeded. But what are we doing to actually walk towards it, embrace it and navigate through it so we can grow? Yeah. So that's another set of skills. So here then, Lorcan, coming back to you, how as teachers and, and people working in school, do we get that judgment right in terms of the amount of pressure that's correct, the amount of pressure that's too much for one child might indeed be very, very different to another Where's the barometer? Where's the judgment? And, and how do we make sure that we are challenging and providing pressure, not insulating children, as Aaron has said, but without putting them in a situation where they can't possibly succeed? Great question. Uh, do you want? Know I think the barometer is often set by the environment. And I don't, I don't think it's up to one of the key messages, I think, for a teacher. I'm a P teacher by trade and at heart. So I don't think it's my job to set the barometer, but I do think it's my job to provide you know give it put it in the context and give them some skills and some tools and to do that there's got to be an element of, you know i've got to teach fear versus i've got to teach them fear so there's a bit of teaching here's here's what it means here's where it comes from here's the source and then you put into context for the boys and girls in your school where does it come from now look i, I work at a great school love my school it's a brilliant brilliant place it's full of great people 
but the boys there are under pressure every day. I, I see it in them, not in so much a bad way, but they've got exams. They were a high fee paying school. You know, they're probably in the back of their mind thinking mum and dad are working really hard to pay school fees here. You know, on the sports field, boys feel pressure. I've just made the B team. I've come from the C team. I've just got into the Bs. I want to stay there. And they put this pressure often on themselves. And I think their environments often sets the barometer, Lewis. And I think, I think as a P teacher, what we have to do is just explain to them that it's okay to, for it to exist. And it's, here's sometimes the various sources of it. Uh, put it into context for them and give them some skills and some tools. Um, and just make sure that we understand that they experience it. I mean, there are, I, I have seen boys in every school I've worked at and girls. I've worked in single sex and co-eds and I've seen pressure do good and bad things. And where it's been a good thing, the boys and girls have been excited by it. They look forward to it because they know they prep for the exam. They're looking forward to the consequences of doing well. They've studied really hard. They believe in what they're doing. Same on the football field or, or a hockey field. You know, they practice, they've trained. They love playing with their mates. The big final, they're going to embrace it. And I've seen boys and girls crumble. Um, because they, they don't have the little small steps or the little tools to use. And I think Aaron's point there is good because one of the keys here is to distinguish between you know, self-care and well-being is very important. We all do things to look after our mind and be happy. And you know, whether it's go for a swim, go for a run, meditate, read a book, they're really important things. But I think mental skills from a PE teacher's viewpoint is a jump between self-care into what skill and what tool can I give this child to thrive and not crumble uh, under pressure or fear? I'm interested here, guys, just, just to explore those kids that are not really into PE. And it comes back to what Lewis talked about earlier about competence and confidence. Now, Aaron, you might be able to help us here. How can we use the psychology of what we know about the human brain to really help engage those students that are what we used to determine not sporty, the, the low confidence levels, they, they haven't got physical literacy levels that can get them into teams or anything like that. Where could we, where could we really work on the psychology with those guys to get them actually engaged in PE? Yeah, I mean, to me, to me like it's, it's all about... Um, it's not so much about guy. I've been really influenced by a guy called James Clear. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He wrote a book called Atomic Habits. And one of the things that he says that I think is so brilliant, he says it's not, you know, the, 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 the loftiness or the clarity of the goal that makes someone successful. It's the system of habits they build to achieve it. And I think so often we focus on outcome or result rather than habits or behavior. And I think we have to generate non-outcome success measures that are about behaviors or habits that people are able to develop every day. Just small things done well every day make a hell of a difference, right? So when we look at a kid, it's never gonna be probably about one transformative moment. Like, you know, we hear the stories of massive weight loss and someone looked in the mirror, they had this great moment and then, you know, life changed. It was like the, the moments of all moments you recap. It's not normally how life works. For most people, it's like making little changes every day, having little wins, celebrating that success. And that being those non-outcome success measures, being the fuel and pride and the sense of 
satisfaction generated by little things and little victories and little wins often uh, is the best pathway to build confidence. So I don't think confidence is created. I think you earn it. I don't think you look in a mirror and say, I'm going to be confident today. I think your brain's really smart. And I think your brain goes, can you show me throughout the week what you've done to earn the right to be confident? So when we work with like, like rugby players, for example, like, you know, the All Blacks are walking off the bus. I always ask them, what do you want to be feeling? They'll say confidence. And I say, what are you going to do throughout the week to generate that feeling? It's not a word thing. It's an action thing. So I think with confidence, little wins are important. How important is the culture you surround and immerse yourself in for that? James Clear's no. book, Atomic Habits, is just superb, isn't it? And he talks yeah, I mean, really well, yeah. doesn't he, about the community and the people that you're around will yeah. determine your habits and, and, and the way that yeah. you act. So yeah. can you start to link that a little bit? And, and we'll go to Lorcan after about how that might impact within a, a group environment of getting people to get into the right habits to build their confidence but not do that in a way like you've already established where you, you're wrapping people in cotton wool and saying everything's all right when really it's not. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, there's a very fascinating bit of research the British Olympic Committee did in association with Harvard, and they said that around 70% of people's behaviours are influenced by the environment they're in at any given time. So we know that, um, you know, group dynamics has a massive effect on behaviour, right? The environment you create. And I think... You know, what I've been really encouraging in our discussion with Lorcan, I thought, you know, as a teacher, what if one of the primary questions you answer is, what environment do I need to provide to get the best out of the people that are in it? And what if you started there? And is your environment enhancing the habits that we know help people change? Or is your environment preventing those habits from being established? So I think it's uh, like, you know, we talk, we can use the word culture, right? You can say culture is another way. Culture or environment, I think, are very intertwined, right? It's, it's, you know, for me, culture is the quality of relationships within a group. That's all it is, right? So if we created quality relationships and created an environment that stimulates the desire to make change, then I think we go for a long way. But if, like, for example, you know, the great thing, Lorcan said it before, like you're in a rugby team and say, like, we're going to pull the trigger. You know, you're in a, in a, in a, you're a parent and you're saying failure is okay. But then the moment someone fails is, you know, terminal consequences. So our behaviors don't match up with our words. Then you've crushed that value in a second. So your environment hasn't enhanced. It's destroyed the behaviors that you think are critical to be developed. And so I think, you know, building our environments around our values, that's the hardest part. Like it's really easy to put on a wall. And it's really easy to say, this is what we're about. It's really hard to live. But the environment is the determiner whether those things transform from words into behavioral change. It's the bridge. Yeah. And, and Lorcan, to come to you off the back of that, uh, a lot of what Aaron said we see in schools, don't we? We see it with, with good schools and places that we enjoy working. And we might see it with schools that we compete against where it's done in a similar vein or even where it's done very differently and where we feel maybe it isn't right. Tell us about that difference between creating that supportive culture and environment and that culture and environment that prevents positive change and progress for children. And, and maybe link that, if you will, to that, that idea earlier about fear versus freedom and, and where fear sits with that. 
Great question. I think, look, with a teaching hat on, I think what's really important is, and maybe it's been highlighted by lockdown, and, and maybe it's been highlighted more by the fact people are willing to share, collaborate. You know, I, I think at the minute collaboration is, is, is beating competition between schools, which I think is great. And, I, and that's a good thing. So I think the first way to build that environment and to maybe dampen the fear, I think just to have varied success you know, I mean, success criteria within P lessons, you know, success criteria within your games lessons, your your sports fixture, you just have varied success. So every boy and girl who rocks up knows there's some way, because I am who I am, there's some way I can do really well today. There's some way I can achieve success. Maybe I mightn't be able to actually make that layup and maybe the skill acquisition part isn't there yet, but I'm collaborating, I'm socially engaged, I'm physically active. I think just varied success. And I think to achieve that and to, to make sure that there, there isn't this kind of culture of fear, particularly of, I think for the boys and girls in school, um, not to speak for every teacher out there, but I think judgment of others is probably one of the big ones. And then the consequences for, for either the coach or the parents. I mean, they're the two big ones. If I was 14, 15, looking back, mm-hmm. I would think I would be, I'm going to be judged by my teammates and my peers. And I'm going to face the consequences of, taking a risk and my teammates and my parents, what, what are they going to say? What are my coaches going to do? So I think, I think for schools to make it work on a practical level, I think they've got to be brave. You've got to engage your head. You've got to engage your heads of sections. You've got to get your parent forum, your student forum and say, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And we're going to have varied success criteria. And if you can do that, you're establishing a safe environment. And actually one of the big one of the big successes of, let's say, my topic, which is fear versus freedom, is creating that safe environment where there's no judgment, there's a bit of vulnerability, you know, you leave your ego at the door, you create that safe space where you can make a mistake, take a risk, but you're okay with that. And if I'm honest, maybe Aaron will touch on this, but it stems from the very first topic which the kids do in the pilot, which is on identity. And if I arrive to a lesson and I know there's varied success criteria, and I stick to who I am. So I'm 15 and I know a bit about myself and I've agreed I'm a worker, I'm a grafter, I'm going to be courageous and I'm going to be vulnerable and open, you know? And where did that, so my, I'm, look, I'm a state school boy at heart. My dad's a builder and carpenter, bless him. My mum's a teacher. All my family are based in farming. Both sets of grandparents are farming. We, we just grew up working. I think I was in welly boots from the age of three, three or four. So that work ethic, I brought everything. So if I can bring it to a lesson, bring it to a football session, bring it to a presentation, do my work, I'm going to achieve success. So maybe, Walshie, can you can maybe just touch on the importance of that, like, golden threads, what you talk about, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously, I think identity is, you know, what I would say, the golden thread of mental skills. And, I, and I'll say it from this aspect is that, you know, like, there's so many opportunities to define where your worth comes from, where your value comes from, right? So, you know, I see this particularly in sport. You know, if we can say, you know, is your sense of self-worth or identity derived from the sport you play or is the sport the canvas you get to express your identity through? They see how radically different those questions are. But to express your identity through, you have to actually have one formulated. And so, you know, like there's some great exercises within the lessons we develop, which are around, well, who are you? And so, you know, if you know who you are, what, you, know, you might have three identity anchors as a young person that you might, you know, talk to your father and your grandfather about this is what it means for me. I'm a Walsh. 
you know, as an O'Brien, you know, this is what it means to be a Walsh. This is the characteristics of our family. So my success measure when I play my sport is to be true as I possibly can and authentic to I can be. So that sports becomes a canvas, which I express my identity through rather than the thing that I try and get my identity from. And so, but we've got to have a framework, right? For these kids to have an identity. So if you have an identity vacuum, which most young people do, what fills it? Um, there's many things that can fill it. It can be sport, academics, looks, social media value. You know, like we just know, we see our kids. Like if you think today, you think about the kids you teach, how many of them you reckon walk around today with a sense of internal confidence that's derived from the fact that they have a real clear sense of who they are? Um, not many, but I don't think, you know, and we can argue, well, they don't know who they are until they're, but you know what? We can help them to begin to discover that now. Why not? Because who you are isn't something you create one day. It's what you've inherited. You know, so in New Zealand, we have this notion called whakapapa, which is the idea that you are, you know, I know it's an interesting word, isn't it? Um, it's the <laughs> idea that you aren't just standing in a vacuum in history, um, that you're linked, your arms back to the ancestors who first began and your arms are linked to those generations that will come after you. And right now you're a, it's your time in the sun and your role is to enhance the mana or the, the sense of value or pride of that connection. That's my identity. I didn't create it. I inherited it. And for some people that inheritance means they need to change their identity story because it's pretty dark for other people. It's well, I want to continue that. I want to feel proud about who I am and I want to continue the, the lineage or whakapapa of my family because that's important for me to, to keep that going and then all of a sudden we haven't got a kid who's wondering around who they are we've got a kid who's anchored to something that's a bit bigger than themselves and has a point of reference of who they want to be powerful about identity really powerful and I'd, it's not just kids it's adults mm. as well and and when you look mm. around a staff room you, you can see that people who are secure in themselves or people who are looking for external validation and it'd be interesting here, Lorcan, to look at how is, it, how is it important to get the team buying and, and, and looking at individual personalities within your adult team for this process. Do I, it's, a, it's a great one, actually. I think you, it's, it's relatively simple in some respects because if you have a team, a collaborative team uh, within your department or within your school and you know, you've, got, um, you've got teachers who want to do the right thing, um, then you're, you're away. And I think the, the path to success is easy. I think it's great to debate. It's important to have difference. I think difference should be celebrated and discussed, even to the point of argument. But I think you've got to come back to the source, which is the bottom line, if we can agree as a team that these kids are every day, whether it's at home, on the sports field, particularly in sport, I think, at times, certainly on the exam front, where I don't, I don't think kids have ever been under more pressure for exams uh, you know, in, in the, certainly in the last decade, I think you've got their experience, what we know, their experience pressure every day. They have, they definitely have aspects of fear in their lives, whether it's sport, academics, home life, music, whatever. Every child is searching for an identity, maybe as adults we are as well. Authenticity on the sports field, you know, did the Johnny, did the ball cross the line? Sir, I, I'm not sure. Maybe mm. if across the line, Johnny, it was a goal. 
did across the line, do the right thing, we could we could win the game, you know. Boys and girls are faced with this moment of authenticity all the time. Be true to yourself and your values. So if you have a team in a department where you kind of go, look, what's our driver for PE? What do we want to achieve from our sporting program? So you, uh, And then how are we going to do that? You know, so, and I think mm. embedding, embedding simple habits and simple skills within your team is really important. I will say that overall, the, I, I would say more people than not have bought in, which is great, particularly from staff, because if you give it a go yourselves, you're showing some vulnerability and it's nice to do it. Um, and, it's, it, and it's important because if you've got, you know what it's like, if you've got two or three teachers who bought into a principle of how you guys should teach being in your schools, and two or three who haven't, and you go to the lessons on a particular day and the ethos is bipolar, there's a problem there. So I think for it to work, there's got to be consistency amongst your staff um, and it's got to be kept simple and, and applicable to the kids. So that buy-in from staff is really important. Yeah, I think that links nicely in with the work of James Kerr, doesn't it, in his book, Legacy. And you'll probably be very familiar yep. with that run about the no dickhead rule. And so, mm. <laughs> certainly yeah. Lewis and, and myself introduced that significantly in, in Manila and we built a team around that. I, d I don't know if you can tell us a bit more around that or how, when you have that person spoiling it in your team, how negative is that for the whole culture? Yeah, we just don't tolerate it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, honestly, like this is the advantage of working in professional sports. We have contracts, eh? And so yeah. if you don't, if you don't want to live the, you know, so I talk, talk about this, like we have, what we try to create is what we, we call social belonging with a performance edge, right? So socially, we don't want you to be having anxiety about whether you belong to our team. For example, the team I work for is the Chiefs Super Rugby. But with that privilege comes expectations around your behavior and your performance that if you don't meet, then you can't be here. Does that make sense? Like it's not cruel, it's just reality. Like if it's all about, like I have complete social belonging without performance expectation at my golf club, right? So if I shoot 70 or 100, I am belong. I paid my fee. I can have a beer with the boys afterwards. There's no danger that I don't belong anymore now that's not you know that's that's a, that's a challenge right but we know with our schools and we know with our children and we know with exams boy you know like there is some conditions to belonging and there are some expectations that they do need to meet to be able to go to the next chapter of their life and so you know like we want to help them meet those so you know I suppose in our environment we're big on if you don't buy into or you don't want to be part of or you don't agree to the value of our of our family or our tribe then yeah you don't belong and yeah, i suppose I, we get to be quite ruthless about that because we can just not offer a contract yeah and, but that's the difference law can isn't it where yeah. we're all inclusive in, in in our schools so how do we get those those kids that are on the periphery that that are the little bit on the side that that we need to get involved and we need to get them active. How do how do we approach that, Lorcan? You are great question. I, I think from from my own experience, particularly in lockdown and even the last year or two, I, I think the staff have to lead with a bit of vulnerability. And I think sometimes just getting people on the ground to lead by example is a great thing. And I think to answer that question is you know don't the, the solutions are often just in front of you, but they're sometimes really hard to see. 
And I think, I think if you can get the boys and girls to say, look, I take, I'll make a deal with you. I'll, I'll do this with you. There's a great starting point so they don't feel alone. I think number two is if you can, and it's often with a difficult staff member, and we've all had them in our, in our P departments. We, we can't terminate their contracts. We've often had people who, who just don't buy into a teaching ethos, a pedagogy, a style of coaching, which is inclusive, whatever it is. And I think I think the way to sometimes get around that is to make sure that everyone else is doing it and it's successful. So if you've got 10 in your team and there's eight or nine staff who have bought in, doing it well, success is proven, it's working well, well they can either lag behind or they can join the group or they, and they might do it by, I've got no choice here but to join in. But I think mm. for the kids, I have to say, I think that the, the kids who are getting a lot of benefit and the, often the kids who are most engaged tend to be in schools the kids who are your top performers and your and what we might term your your bottom performers but actually they're not they're not bottom performers they're just not physically literate yet they just haven't found their sporting competitive drive yet they just haven't done it yet and actually they're the kids who will thrive the most and they give you a good example there's a boy who's going through some tough times uh in his home life mum's not so well and uh, two years ago he was I would say he was just physically not where he should have been for his age. That physical literacy and competency wasn't quite there. He's out running 5Ks doing PB and he's 10 and he's 11. And he's, he, he said, so I'm going to do this because I know my identity. I've looked into my family history, you know, oh, yeah. cor- being courageous and working hard. So if I'm, if I'm courageous and I work hard, I'm going to do this 5K regardless of my time. And I, so I think, I think the input from the kiddies tends to be sometimes to start with the top end and the bottom end, but they're not the bottom end. They're just different. And, and, and I think that's the thing. We sometimes categorize these kids into your top performers, your bottom performers, but they're only bottom in certain areas. And if we've got that varied success as PE teachers, then maybe the physical literacy is the one they haven't got yet, but they've got the other five. And maybe one of those five is the mental side of, of school, which which I think is really relevant. You know, I I wish I had done a bit of this as a kid, and I'm not just saying that because I look back. I was a, I was a fairly insecure 14, 15 year old. If if I was probably talented in many regards, but I was an insecure kid, and it took me till what maybe 16, 17, 18 to just find a bit about myself and be comfortable in my own skin, and that helped. Interestingly, it started with sport, but it helped me in school. It helped me in uni. Uh, where I probably flourished more than I did in school. Um, and if we can just get the kids to be comfortable and we can maybe stop pigeonholing these kids into performers, non-performers, top end, bottom end, I, I think that needs to, I hope that changes. And I hope one of the driving forces in P of the next three or four years is that breadth of um, a variety of success, you know, um, which, which I think would be, which, which would be great to have. I think you've hit the nail on the head when it all comes back to identity, doesn't it, guys? I mean, Aaron, you, you might want to touch upon that again. How important is it for you to know yourself in order to then go on and, and achieve what you're capable of? Yeah, I like to say it this way. Know yourself, you know, be yourself, stay yourself under pressure, right? So the beginning of that, know who I am. How do I continue to be me? And how do I stay me when I'm under the pump? but you've got to have a reference point or a beginning point for that to be put in place, right? Which is, this is who I want to be. And this is who I am. This is the, this is who I, this is what it looks like for me to behave that way, even when I'm in the highest sort of pressure. And um, 
So I, I can't go past that. Do I, do I, it's interesting because I think, you know, there's, I mean, obviously Walchie's a brilliant man and, you know, is a great practitioner and, you know, Alice and Lewis, you guys are innovators and you've been wonderful in the last year and what you guys have done, but we're PE teachers at heart, you know, and I think, I think one of the, one of the drivers for me is I, I actually don't mind where the mental side sits within the school. I just hope that someone in the school can embrace it, whether it's part of PE, don't know whether it's, Will it fit into PSHE or will it fit into well-being? Don't know. Could it be taught as a lesson? Could it be done as an extension project? Don't know. And I think that's part of the lovely journey is we're still on that journey. It's not exactly 100% correct, but I know it's a great thing that's happening. And I think, you know, I'm a dad and my little one is eight years old and I know she's probably inherited all my my wife's good genes and probably my bad ones. You know, she's a bit of a worrier. Uh, and I can I can see I can, I I look at her sometimes and think oh she's she I'm I know I'm a worrier at times um, and that fear versus freedom was a great topic for me to do which is probably why I picked to do it um, but I want her to be able to sit at an interview or in a difficult moment when she's 24 25 when it actually matters and be comfortable in her own skin be able to be an upstander be able to know herself and just be happy and fulfilled. Uh, you know, and if she scores a winning goal in netball when she's 14, brilliant, but she probably won't remember that. You know, what she might remember are the bigger moments in her life. And I think I just want, as a dad and, and a, as a teacher, just want these kids to be prepared because the bottom line is they are going through pressure. They feel every week and they, 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 have, they feel fear and they don't know where it comes from. And they, they do sometimes compromise their authenticity because they don't know who they are. And it's not a big thing to find out who you are. You know, where does my work ethic come from? It comes from a family. You know, every one of my grandparents were farmers. My uncles are farmers. Just that's where it comes from. Um, so understanding a bit about yourself isn't that difficult. Um, and I think it's a really worthwhile thing to be doing. Yeah, I'd, I'd completely agree with you. And I think just summarising what we've talked about today, three really strong topics come through for me of pressure and handling pressure, of belonging and being part of something and connecting with people. And then also the identity and authenticity that idea of you know you, you need to be the best version of yourself you are you nobody else can do you and if you don't know who you are yet you're going to go and express that in different ways whether that's through behavior whether that's through your fight flight or, or freeze you're going to be overrun by that part of your brain that tells you that you, you can't do these things and actually once you do understand who you are and you're a bit more honest with yourself and you could develop that identity and authenticity maybe then if we've understood what what Lorcan and Aaron have said correctly, maybe then you've got the space to start to learn around these tools and these aspects of what you're doing to help you to move forward. Loads of, it comes back to Lewis, doesn't it? Those transfer skills that we often talk about and what the purpose of education actually is. Is it all about exams? Is it all about learning PE? Is it about learning certain skills? Well, it's those transferable skills that you've talked about there of, of knowing how to deal with pressure is that probably one of the most important things that we should be teaching in schools or it, is it a traditional yep. rote length curriculum? Yep. I think Can it I is because yeah, I think it is. Like it's it's like like even what Lawkin said to me, I, I would hate to think that we would get worried about where it fits and deny our kids from the opportunity of getting the core skill. Like let's just make it fit. You know, and that's why we developed we develop the curriculum together. You know, we developed six lessons because 
do we know where it fits? It's probably a little bit of um, ready faint. Uh, was it ready fire aim? To be honest, but looking at it, going well, we've got a curriculum developed. Here's six subjects that we think our kids are wrestling through. Here's some tools and some ideas of how we help them navigate through it. Please don't get caught up in the bureaucracy of where it fits. Let's just make it available. Yeah. That's, yeah, you know, one. that's with my non-educators hat on. <laughs> Not being in schools. I think as well, Al, you probably touched on it when you started. I think, you know, PE is going through a bit of a, a transition at the minute. Probably a really good thing. Maybe going back to why we went to college to be PE teachers in the first place. Um, lots of kids are leaving primary schools obese and not having the necessary physical literacy. So I think there are, I think lockdown has provided reflection. It's provided sharing good practice, connecting with people, lots of collaboration, where, where the competition between schools isn't as important as doing the right thing and having the right program. And I think that's been a lovely thing for me. And I've learned myself through there, you know, just to open up and be a bit of be vulnerable. And I think one of the key messages and certainly takeaways, it doesn't have to fit within PE and it doesn't have to fit within well-being. It doesn't have to fit within. It doesn't have to always have a type or a fit. It just needs to be done. And I think part of the next step is, you know, where exactly can it work well? And if you've got I tell you, I tell you what I do know. If you've got great people who are driven, who are motivated by it and you've got kids willing to learn and be a bit vulnerable, you're going to have some great success. Um, and when I say great success, I mean, if a child who's 12, 13, 14, 15 finds a bit about their family, knows a bit about themselves, understands a bit about pressure and is a bit more comfortable in their own skin. For me, that's great success. I mean, what, how do we define, how do we measure impact and success in this kind of mental skills pilot? Well, it, it's about, it's, it's tiny margins. If they know a bit about themselves, they understand pressure, they can be authentic and they didn't know that before. That is gold. I, I think that's gold us. And I think we should bang the drum and, and get it into schools. Um, and just, and even if we're, I think the very fact we're talking about it's a good thing. Um, and, you know, I, and I think Aaron can maybe touch on this, you know, someone asked a great question a couple of weeks ago, you know, well, you know, Aaron and Walsh, you know, he's, he works in high performance and it's all about elite sport and he works with all blacks and he works with the chiefs in New Zealand. Well, high performance in schools is, is happening every day. High performance is do well in your lesson. High performance is, I'm in the C team, I want to be the best I can be, I want to get into the B team, that's high performance. High performance is writing a good essay when you're tired, you've been to club practice, it's eight o'clock at night, you're having your dinner. So I think high performance is just a, can be a varied thing within schools, um, and it's just about kids being the best. Talking okay. too much. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's, it's good luck and it's good. It's great. It's great to hear the, the diverse opinions and you, you're really passionate about your subject and that's great to see. Where can we find out more about the, the pilot project? Well, you know, we're, we, we don't have a fancy website at the moment. We're just sort of um, developing it. Um, not even, no, we're not actually developing it because we've just really done the pilot program. Now we've opened it up to other schools. So probably the best thing is to find me on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn's probably the best thing to find me was Aaron Walsh and, you know, or to find Lorcan on LinkedIn too. And we get tons of messages every day around different things like this. So I'm more than happy to connect with anyone and, and look at how it might work. Um, so there's two aspects, like I think just to make it clear with the program, we're really looking at design aspect. 
So that's the what, the content. Now the delivery, we want to really leave that up to the schools. So that's the how component. Does that make sense? So, you know, like I don't have the time and I don't think it's actually that productive to me to go to every school and coach them how, how to deliver the program. I think the design of it, you know, here are the core truths, here are the core lessons, how are you going to deliver this? Well, your context is so different. You've got, it's got to be, you know, quite bespoke. And as a teacher, that's part of what you teachers do well. You understand your context and how to apply information that you have. And so, you know, that's sort of how we've, you know, sort of put it together. Here's some design aspect. They've got some great coaches like Lawkins, an amazing coach with how he's done this with the schools and, um, and being very generous in answering those questions around the delivery aspect. Um, so it's sort of a, our, our combo has been, you know, well, should you design and put the curriculum together and I'll tweak that with you. And, and Lawks has been great at helping sort of guide some of the schools through the delivery aspect. Great. Top stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll have a look. We're going to, we're going to finish with a quick fire question for each of you. Um, Aaron, I'm going to start with you first. Tell us a, a book, a book or a podcast recommendation, something you're reading or listening to at the moment. Ah, uh, Atomic Habits, man. Atomic yeah, Habits, Atomic, great I can't book. go past it. Like, I just keep on rereading it because, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah that's that's my test. My test is I'm a listener because I drive a lot with work. Like, I, I live an hour and a half from, from work in Hamilton, um, and I'm over there quite regularly and a couple of hours in Auckland. So if I really, really like it, it goes from the listening um, part, and I buy the book. So I'm a bit like you. This just sits here. Because so that one's so passed the listening test. It's passed. I'll buy it if I, you know, there's a few. I haven't got many, but there's a few. I'm like, I have to absorb this. Um, and, and I think about Atomic Habits is it's so simple. You're like, I wish I had the genius to write that because I, I'm a bit, I'm real. Like if you can take something complex, make it simple. And accessible, then it changes the way that people are able to react with the information, right? So yeah. now nah, that's my go-to at the moment. Keep it simple. Um, Alan, yeah. you got one for Lorcan. Yeah, Lorcan will do the love one. They want my favourite one, Lorcan. Three leaders in world history. Who would you go out for a meal with, dead or alive? Oh, great! I'm glad one. I didn't get that one. That is a toughie. <laughs> I would. Um, I would do. I would do Churchill just for the crack. I watched um, I watched the movie over Christmas, and so I think I, I think he's fascinating, and I love history. One of my favourite subjects in school. I think he's he's a he's a sort of mercurial <laughs> character. So I do that. I, did I you, would love to. Did you did you watch the Crown and, and see the Churchill on the Crown? I did. I don't which, which do you think was better, the, the the Churchill on the film or the Churchill on the Crown? Big question. This. Oh, big question. <sighs> I thought the the actor I think I can't remember his name is it um, who played Churchill in The Crown was was unbelievable. Um, I thought he he was brilliant, um, but I also loved the movie. Uh, I just think I think he's fascinating. I think it's a World War Two was a, 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 an immense time in, in in the history of this country and stuff. So I think he's just a fascinating character. Oh goodness, yeah. So I probably put him top of the list. And um, do you know what? My old man passed away ten years ago, and he was a great leader, and he was a carpenter and a farmer. And I bring him back, and I'd have dinner with him and tell him I love him. So I put him number two. Uh, he was a great man, and he was a great leader, and he taught me a lot. And actually, I reflect on my identity, which I hadn't done since I started this sort of journey. I mean, I knew nothing about mental skills. I'm. I'm not a practitioner. I'm not an expert. I'm just a regular Joe who loves teaching PE 
Uh, and, you know, yeah, so I bring the old man back and um, thank him for what he did. Pick those two. Nice. You've got one more if you want one. Oh, I've got one more. Oh, dear. I'll, I'll probably take, I do want to do, I'm going to make a big shout out, dead or alive. So I'll take you two lads. I'll take Alan and Lewis. <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you for why. Because you've done, you've been great. And I tell you, you have led because you've been, you've shown drive to just get out of your comfort zone. I think your podcast has been great. And actually, we, one of the, one of the key starters for this pilot was the pair of you. Because you wrote an article which you published on LinkedIn at the very start of lockdown, which was, which forced PE teachers to readdress PE. And I shared it with Chris Dossett and the pair of us got chatting about things we could do to make a difference and maybe that's where the mental skills start. So I'll take you both, and I'll, and I'll buy the wine. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you on both fronts, Lorcan. Um, John Lithgow was the guy who played Churchill in the Crown. Um, phenomenal, but about two foot two high for Churchill, from what I can gather. Um, he was very good. He was. He was superb. Thanks for your kind words, Lorcan, and, and thanks uh, to you and Aaron for joining us today. Really, really appreciate it, fellas. Really enjoyed that conversation. So many takeaways and so much to, to, to think about in application and in our teaching and pedagogy. Cheers. Welcome. Uh, guys, Thanks. Search Infinite Leaders Live on YouTube and IGTV. Uh, we're pleased to announce we're on all popular podcasts, as you may know. Please do click subscribe. Please leave us a review. Please tell us what you think. Um, and remember to visit theinfinitelearners.com for all sorts of stuff. Some of it well thought out, some of it off the cuff. Hopefully you enjoy it. Um, see you next time, guys. Thanks a lot for joining us. Cheers, guys.